it is. Okay. Am I on now? It's all green. So is my stomach. I I have thought, well, why I'm up here is, I guess the elders think that um, I should have done this. They asked me, so that's their fault. Um, but what I have to say, it's been on my mind for a year or better. So obviously God knew that I, I needed to talk about it. So when they asked, um, it really wasn't a question of why. It was a question of, oh, now um, is the time. And, and so I'm just going to try to get through this. Uh, so... If you don't know me by now, you might you might be new. I, w- I know we have some new people here. But if you aren't new and you don't know me, you might have been in a coma for 20 years. Because I have been in this church for 20 years. Well, actually 21, I think. No, 20. Because uh, Glenn and I were married 21 years ago this August. So... I do need to um, start this out with a cautionary statement uh, to those that don't know me. Um, If you're new, there's going to be some surprises. You're going to be surprised. Um, And those that do know me, I just want you to know my goal is to show the work of God in my life through some early life and some more recent darker times. There will be words and phrases used that may spark conversation later. I will speak generally, but not diminish the point of reference. So, let's begin. Let's go to the beginning. This is the only picture. I just wanted to use it to lighten the mood. But there is some similarities between this guy and this guy. Both fat and bald. I realized that when I was going through the pictures. So, anyway, that's the only picture I'm going to put on here. Um, I just thought that would be funny. Uh, Okay, so um, early life is, um, I was saved at roughly around the age of eight. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were um, in-state missionaries, more on the eastern board. Uh, Pennsylvania, and then we moved um, for, I believe, each child. I have five brothers and sisters. For each child, they moved to a different state and then even back to states previous. But um, I have five. I have a a brother, an older brother, two older brothers and an older sister, and then I have a younger sister. So we've lived in Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, Indiana, Tennessee, and then back to Michigan. So what they would do is my parents would be the stay-in people for that campsite. My dad would do the maintenance, the mowing, the the labor. Then my mom would be the cook, the nurse, the the woman on on scene. And then the people would come in on that given camp, and then they would administrate. But my parents would live there. And, uh, and so, um, one of the things that I got to learn as a, as a kid was God's faithfulness. And I'm going to be quick about this, but my parents had no money. They, they told, uh, us kids that there were times that they just didn't know what to expect, but they had, tr- uh, had faith in God. So the, the one that I'm going to tell you about is from my home state, Tennessee, my parents lived in a in a um, in a house on on the grounds, very close to the Tennessee Valley. And back then, uh, I'm showing my age. Uh, they heated with coal, so they had a coal chute. So my mom came to my dad. And he was out running around. And she's like, Harold, my uh, we were out of coal, or very close to being out of coal, and we don't have any money. And so uh, they prayed about it. And 
So my mom sat here, and so here comes the coal truck. It's just, I'm assuming, kind of like John, what John Cole does. He shows up. He's on a schedule. Hey, this is what we're doing. I'm here. And so the truck arrives, and my mom says, I'm just going to go get the mail. And, Harold, you just start working with this guy, maybe delay him. So she goes to the mailbox, picks the mail out, coming through it, and she gets to this envelope. And she's like, what's this? And she pulls out money. A check, I, I kind of assume. But anyway, she pulls out money. And it's for a dollar amount that I don't know. And uh, and so she gets back, and the guy has unloaded the coal, gives him the bill. The check and the bill matched exactly. But to the, to the penny. That... Is God's faithfulness. I have had, I've done that with myself and Gwen in our life. We had, we had stuff going on and I was like, God, I was driving home from work. I know exactly where I was. I was at, at, uh, um, Dominator. I was passing Dominator. And I said, I, we don't have any money. I don't know what you expect. You're going to have to do something because I can't. I've done every, my resources are dry. I got home. It was a check. Again. That paid the bill. Now it wasn't exact, but it was a check that got us through that point in time. That, to me, is relying on God and God's faithfulness. Okay, so I've been on a couple mission trips, um, not specifically on my own, but when I was 11 or 10, uh, I don't remember, but it was uh, between my fifth and sixth grade year. Uh, we as a family were a part of a mission organization in Bethany, Missouri called Missions Outreach. And they would take kids from all over the United States and Canada. They'd bring them to Bethany, Missouri, train them for a week or two in calisthenics, Bible memory, and worship. And they would prepare them. And then on the, at the end of that, they would put them on buses and they would send them out. They would send them to the airports and they would spread across the world. Typically, I think there was about 10 teams. They would go to every point that was available. So I, my brothers and sisters, have been to Haiti, France, Costa Rica, um, and India. And then I have been to um, Honduras, Costa Rica, and Mexico. But Honduras is the one I put up here because I actually was in country for for seven weeks. Uh, no, I'm sorry, four weeks. Or I don't remember because it was when I was 11. So um, this is kind of a typical, I, I don't have pictures of the actual place I was, but this is typical. Tin roof buildings, cinder block, dirt roads. <clears throat> we were in a boy's uh, home. Uh, for runaways and disadvantaged, and so um, we were on a can on a on the grounds of a place that was more like an uh, orphanage, and so I got to experience some pretty nasty things like cows being slaughtered and you know just poop everywhere. I don't know. Uh, we made concrete out of a wheelbarrow, sand rock, and Portland cement. And water, you know, and just shoveling and then carrying it to the site and dumping it and making buildings, foundations that way. But I got to learn what's, what the difference was in my life at home and the life of somebody in a, in another land. I learned that they don't speak English. I learned that they don't, aren't, they don't have money. I learned that they make things out of what's there. Toys out of garbage. Um, so I learned the cultural difference at 11. So I got to come home with some with some new ideas about what the world was outside of where I was, Lawson, Missouri. And then um, I went to Mali, West Africa, in 92 something in that in that area. Um, that was a fantastic experience. I went with William Jewell College on a winter break. My mom, well, the, the organization, the, the church organization that we 
built our church through, uh, the missionaries on site needed help. And so my mom contacted them and they said, come, get a team. We can house you. We can do this for a couple of weeks. And I, it was just, you know, maybe four weeks. So I got to go to Mali, West Africa. Dry. But the people were amazing. I mean, Emily and Willard and the Bakers. I know what that's like. The people are amazing. And you learn from them. And so one of the things I learned from them as I was there is this is not America. That is the one thing I learned. And this is, this is the, this is the reason. I went as a, as a grease monkey. I went to fix things. I went to just help out with my hands. And so I'm welding on some things and the welder generator blew up. It basically threw a rod and it was done. So we still had things to prepare. So we took all the material loaded in his truck. We went to a nearby town and found a weld shop. So I saw firsthand how they do things in um, welding and, and maintenance and things like that. So here we come to this lean-to. There's a, there's a kind of adobe building, and it has a grass hut lean-to with all these guys. They're standing around. they got these dark sunglasses. They don't have welding helmets. They have these dark sunglasses that you could just look at the sun and see a little pinpoint. So that was the first thing because I wasn't used to that. And then I'm standing, waiting to, uh, I'm waiting to do something. I don't remember, but I'm standing. I'm 6'2", and I was 6'2 then. I'm 6'2", and I'm standing under this hut, kind of just right under the perimeter of it. And this guy, I didn't know him. He came up to me, and he pushed me down, and he went like this. And I looked up, and just about right there was a unshielded 220 uh, electrical line. There was no insulation. They had taken bare wire, and they had strung it just through all the little branch forks and stuff to where they needed it to be. So I'm standing there, and it's sitting right beside my head. And he's like, I don't think that I want to have to pick this guy up. Or pieces of. So he, he came to me and he, he protected me. So, um, while I was there, my, my friend, this man that I knew through the church, who was the missionary, um, he says, while you're doing this, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do some work. Which meant he was gonna evangelize. And so he, Gave me the pleasure of evangelizing somebody right there. I, I mean, I was kind of doing my thing and he was right there talking to this guy. And I just want to quickly show you what it was like to evangelize in Mali, West Africa. Okay. Hello, sir. How's your mother? How's your father? How's your son? How's your dog? How's your wife? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Okay. And he would stand there and he would listen. And he would listen. And he would listen. And that's what I wanted to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the saving, redeeming, um, redemption of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Never. And I was 20 something. I've never seen something like that. I was expecting this guy to go, get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. I have heard that. I don't need your religion. I don't, this is what I expected. And this guy just stands there and, yeah, okay, okay. Thanks. Maybe he, they moved on, but it was very impactful to me to know that this, the idea of everybody, everybody being like us around the world is a, it's a lie. And there's people that are just waiting, waiting to hear the gospel. Okay.
So let's move on here. Okay, so before this, um, I just want to tell you that I led a very simple, lazy life when I was young. Um, I was not motivated. I tried college. I tried a lot of things. And um, I didn't really care. I lived with my parents a lot. Or I lived with some, like my brothers or sisters or something like that. I only served myself in my entertainment. That was, that was the thing. I had many jobs and I had no, no reason to keep a job. Okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this until it gets hard or I get till, till I get bored and then I'll just move on or I just won't work for a while. During that time, I had three heart, or two heart surgeries. I have a congenital heart defect where my heart races. And uh, so I go into AFib. And so I had two of those to try to correct. They didn't work. Um, but during that time, I used that as a crutch. I used the fact that I was broke. Here, well, you know, people had pity on me instantly. Oh, that is... Let us help you. Don't do anything. Man, I, it was like sponge. I was like, yep, okay. I am not going to do anything. You can just do everything for me and I will just be over here with my friends and why, why, why would I? Nobody really encouraged me. And then my parents said, it's time. I remember my dad and I, were in a argument in in the garage, and I said something I shouldn't have. I don't think it was offensive, but I just said, you know, as dads were like, you can push my buttons, but then there's going to come that time when I'm going to be like, okay, playtime is over. Dad's speaking now. I've done it. You know, it's all fun and games until you push dad too far, and then dad doesn't play anymore, and you're like, aww. I don't like this dad. So he got in my face. And my dad did not get in my face. My dad did not yell. He got in my face and he says, you're getting out. And I was like, what? What did I do that for? So I ended up buying my first house in Independence. It was small. Um, It was... Uh, very scary for me. I had to take care of everything, pay the bills. Um, and it was also a time for me to be by myself. And that wasn't good either because I was extremely immature, still self-serving, still very selfish and, and looking just for the, just looking for the day, you know. All right, I'll go to work, but tonight I'm going to go do this. And I'm going to go buy this. And I was just broke and living on my own. And I had no rules. I made the rules. I lived by myself. Okay? So, then shortly after that, I meet Gwendolyn Marie Yoder. For for those of you that don't know, um, well, just as a quick side note, Every time I've spoke, Gwen isn't here, and it bothers me. It bothers me that she's not sitting here. She's, she's supporting me. But of everything I've ever done up here, she's never been here. And it bothers me that she's not, and, and I wish that she was. So um, I just wanted to make sure you understood that. Um, so Gwen and I met at a dating service. I bet you some, some of you didn't know that. Um, it was called Equally Yoked. My little sister, who I lived with, she said, why don't you try this place? It's new. You could use somebody, you know. So I went. I got in for 50 bucks. I was one of the first 100 people to join Equally Yoked. They had, I don't know, well, they didn't have 100 because I was, you know, the 50th. And... uh so it cost me like pennies and they said, but in a year you're going to, you'll re-up and then you'll pay a different price. I was like, no, I won't. And the guy was like taken aback and he says, well, what are you talking about? I says, I will not buy a wife from you. I said, I'll give you a year, but at a year I'm out. 
because I'm not using this as a crutch. I'm not going to find a wife. I, I at least had that, that sense of mind to, um, to believe that. So I met her at a mixer. It was really funny because I had been to a couple mixers before to try to find somebody to talk to. Honestly, I, I, I mean that. I was just trying to find somebody that I could connect to, that I could talk to, that I could start a friendship with or something. And it was tough because I was meeting some very bitter people and people that had given up on things or they were very, I would like to use the pious, very... <clears throat> you know, that's what I, that's what I saw. That doesn't mean it's the rule, but that's what I saw. So I remember going to a couple and I was going to go to a New Year's Eve party and I found a girl that I was going to meet there and we were going to be the couple. Well, she brought a date. <laughs> so I left. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. I know where the door is. So I left. Well, we had, a, uh, I had to, this for the internet, uh, most of it. Uh, in order to view anything, you had to go to the office. And they had books, you know, of, of the snapshot and the best things about you and everything. Well, I saw a picture and the um, secretary and I got to be friends because I was the first, one of the first 50, you know, so she knew my face. And uh, she says, there are twins coming to this mixer. And I'm thinking, that's a better than 50-50 odds. <laughs> so I go. They didn't show up. But I'm standing there, and I, and I, I remember it was in Kansas, and uh, it was like at a shelter. So we lots of people. And I'm walking around in this shelter, and I... Again, if you know me, you know I like talking to people, I, and I, I'll pretty much come up in, to anybody, and I'll be pleasant. I, I just like talking to people. It doesn't really matter. You know, what are they going to do, not talk to me? I find somebody else. So I'm standing there, and there's a picnic table, and there's a bunch of people standing there, and there's a woman that does not want to give eye contact, and then there's Gwen. Well, I just stand there and I'm listening. That is my, that's my tool. If you want the in on Chris Meeks, I listen and then I find a way in. And I'll, and I'll, I know a lot about a lot of things. So I can come up with something to be like, yeah, yeah, you, I can tell you something. So that, that's a, that's a little tidbit for you in case you want to know. Uh, so, we, uh, I sat down, I start, started talking to Gwen, the other girl, she was like, and she started talking over here, and Gwen and I just talked and talked and talked, and Gwen's like, I can't see, my eyes are like burning, I've got contacts in, and my eyes are so dry, and I'm like, oh, that's, this is horrible. Well, the night's dwindling down, and so she and I, I, I don't even think we were dancing I, I don't remember what but anyway she asked me to come do something else that's a, a that was a no 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 you couldn't go do anything you had to go through the company so if she wanted to talk to me she had to go through the company to say okay we're going to call chris and we're going to ask him if you can talk to him <laughs> and so i was like i'm sorry well she was like okay she was only there to look she was just there to observe and kind of see what was happening. So anyway, it wasn't like a day or two. And I get a phone call from the office and they said, this girl, this woman, she has called and she wants to know if she can call you. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. She called me on a, on a weeknight. And I think I got off the phone with her at five in the morning and uh, had a great conversation Friend, friendly conversation about just who we were in our lives, and she kind of gave me some idea of where to begin. Well, we were friends for a while, and uh, so I, being myself, was just like ramming, come on, come on, like me, like me, like me. And she said, you're going to have to slow down and take it easy because I'm not that way. 
I'm not going to I'm not going to ram through this. Well, to be quicker about this, because I'm taking forever. I gave her a present. I remember coming down to Calvin's and I gave her a present and I said, this is only a gift because I am I am very thankful to have you as a friend. I said, this means nothing more to me at this point than just to tell you that I I value our friendship. So not long after that, we went on a date or just a hangout at Cheesecake Factory on the plaza and I was seeing somebody. I had somebody on my radar and uh, I was telling her about this girl. And I remember saying, man, I'm just glad you're my friend. And God is my witness. She tells me that she's like, if I don't do something now, it's over. I might not have another opportunity. In the matter of a month, we were an item. It was very, very quick. Um, and then quickly after that, I was, in, I asked her to be married. And I want to at least tell you that when I asked Calvin for Gwen's hand in marriage, he, we were all, it was after cantata practice and I sat down in the chair, you know, and I was, there's Calvin and I said, Calvin, okay, I really like your daughter. And I, and he gets this big grin. Everybody knows that grin. He's like, yeah, Absolutely. And Glenn says, Dad, what about, hey, how are you going to support my daughter? He's like, I don't care. I don't care about that. You're a nurse. That's what he said. <laughs> so it was funny, but it was true. Uh, I was deadbeat. I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I was a deadbeat. I didn't keep a job. I was a, I was not good. It was not fun. We did not have a... We did not have a a marriage that began good. I was so, so selfish. And we're, and she's trying. She's working. She's working a lot and she's putting up with me. And by, and I mean that, putting up with me. She is keeping her side of the deal and she's putting up with me. So we have, um, we're meeting our friends. We have, I have, uh, Calvin and the Cantata and, uh, we were married on August 14th, 1999 because I was afraid of Y2K and I was afraid I am never getting married because the world's going to end and we need to get this done. That's the truth. It's as stupid as you can get, but that's the truth. And, um, so selfish. Then we add kids. Selfish. Then I just go back to my old self. I'm lazy, selfish, self-serving Chris that won't hold a job. And a lot of you know me. You know that point in time. Because I was on... Ah, it just repulses me to think of what I said in church, how I said it, how I acted. Oh, it's just it's sickening. And I mean that. So, so we're going to take a dive. I'm raising my kids. I'm living on F Highway at the edge of Garden City. I'm raising my kids, kind of. I'm fighting with Gwen a lot. And I'm aggravated why I feel so lonely and distant from my family, and from God. All the while, I'm trying to put on that face of cheer and Christian living. I tried. I, I don't know. I, again, talk to you as I think everybody knows that. Everybody knows that facade. Everybody comes to church and says, everything is perfect. Everything is great. When you argued on the way here or the cows got out and, you're, and you got, you know, you tore your pants and you're just like, you know, but then you get in the doors and you're just like, oh, this is a place of rest. But there's no reason you can't be yourself. And if you have had a bad day, I don't know. I don't have any reason why not to show it. You don't have to take it out on everybody. But at least somebody would notice, hey, you're having a bad day. I would like to at least know maybe 
what is causing that trial in your life? Can I pray for you about it? Can I help you physically through it, mentally through it, just listening? So, I want to explain. I want to go and tell you how I got here um, as a person. Um, I was... A, I was introduced at an early age to adult subject matter by the age of 10. So by 10, I had seen probably my first magazine or um, the first uh, talk. Um, something of that nature had entered my mind. I was, uh, by before the age of 10, I was molested and suggestively manipulated by most, uh, in most of my early years, by a couple of uh, neighbor girls. One was physical and the other was a mental, sexual. Um, I was torn in that time because I knew, the dis- I knew the difference between right and wrong. And uh, I have talked to people that have been raped. I have talked to people that have had... Um, traumatic events in their lives and I, I know what that's like because when I came home from, from that girl doing that I was sick to my stomach I, I couldn't tell my parents because I was afraid that I was going to be in trouble I was afraid they were, they, they were going to be mad at me and, and so I bottled it put a cork in it the next, the next neighbor, uh, these were all, actually it was the same house. The, the two people came from the same house, just at different times of, you know, families living there. Um, she, um, she decided that she was going to ask me questions as to, adult questions. And I'm young. I don't know. I don't care about girls. I mean, I do, but, you know, it's like redhead, blonde, you know, can you swim? Do you like riding bikes? You know, that, that was my world. And she's asking me, do you like my body? Do you like this? Do you like that? Have you ever thought of me this way? Um, let me show you. Let me show you something. Does this interest you? That's the kind of thing. And so, that happened a lot uh, with me growing up. I had neighbor after neighbor. These two just were the the top rankers, I guess. But uh, I don't I don't really understand. I, actually, I do kind of understand now that I'm here. But um, at the time, I was just really why why are you picking on me? Why why me? So. Um, as I'm going through this, I say, how am I going to process what I've seen and experienced? So I've seen adult material. I've, I've, been, I've been talked to with adult attitudes and um, ideals. What are you going to do with it, Chris? Nothing. I'm not going to do anything with it. So I didn't. I put a cork in it, and I just started living my life selfishly, on my own terms, for my own gain, just to entertain myself so that I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to go back and think about what hurt, what disturbed me. <clears throat> so I did what I thought I needed, and I sought out people to fill that hole of guilt and shame that I felt. I was in pain, and I didn't feel I could tell anybody why I felt that way. So I put on the face. This was also the time, uh, this would be late 70s, early 80s, and men didn't talk about anything. There wasn't, a, I di- there wasn't this counselor attitude. There wasn't this, hey, let's get together as men. This was a, okay, deal with it and get on with it. I didn't have support. I had my parents, but I was afraid of my parents, of course. I said that. I was afraid that they were going to be upset with me by these things and how I was acting. So I kept a very separate life. 
Very separate life. Christian at home, poor example, not at home. So I found my acceptance was channeled through girlfriends and quick relationships. Um, I know this is a, a, a strange statement, but I have had it in my 49 years. Up before Gwen, I had about 150 girlfriends. Um, that's pretty much anybody that would go out with me. I counted, and that was quick. That could be one day, two days. It could be probably maybe a couple months, but I never, never was there a uh, relationship that lasted a year, ever. Even the one couple people that I thought that I would actually marry, it just it never worked out because they saw in me what I didn't see. And that was, uh, I was very, uh, what, what's the word? Um, I was down on myself a lot, which I am still. I mean, I'm working through that, but um, I just, I was negative about myself, and they didn't like being around that. And so the one girl that I thought I would marry, she's like, I really do like you, but I can't stand that negativity. So I'm just going to separate. We're just, we're just going to be friends. I was like, wow, that was, that was a hit. So I brought all this to my marriage. I stood right here and committed to Gwen in marriage. And a number of you had the displeasure of seeing my life firsthand the first 10 years of Gwen, with Gwen, and also here at Sycamore. You knew me that 10 years. It's been, it's been 20 years since I've been here, but some of you actually experienced who I was the first 10 years when I first got here with Gwen. Uh, and if you think that I'm strange now, it... Well, I'm sure you'll talk after all this is over. Um, This baggage and this perversion of life stayed with me. And it was lying to me every day. It kept me right where I needed to. It wanted me and it lied to me and it lied to me. So here comes the bottom. If I ever... Felt I was worthless. I had a clip to jump off and I found it. Oh, yes, I did. October of 2009, I was arrested for inappropriate action with a 14-year-old. In 2010, I was through the courts and I started a five-year probation with mandatory group counseling. I am a registered state of Missouri and federal government as a sex offender. Surprise. There's that information that maybe some of you didn't know. Um, I would rather tell you myself. I don't really care for people to talk about me, but I I definitely will tell you. um, And I don't hide from it. It's just it's a touchy subject. It's something I have zero pride in. Okay, um, I abide by laws set in place to monitor my life on a daily basis, and I also give the public an answer. So there's, there's rules. Uh, there's things I can and cannot do, and there's things as simple as if I don't register a car, I can go to, it's a felony. And then some are in place because there's, there's some bad dudes out there, bad men and women out there. And so, you know, public places of schools and, and things like that. One of the stipulations during that probation was, was absolutely abstaining from porn, among other things like alcohol and, of course, minors. I was not successful and served 14 days shock in jail for once again for viewing material that was considered adult and against the law. So I went back to Henry County for another 14 days. Uh, Rick Beard, who was the pastor at the, at the time, um, 
the day that I, well, yeah, it was the day that I knew I was going to be arrested. I went to his house and talked with him at length. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, well, I'll come see you in prison. And just like that. I mean, he, he had the wor- worst bedside manner sometime. Um, but anyway, later on, as we talked, and we talked a lot, um, he said, you did not get here overnight, and you will not get out overnight either. And it has been a very long road. Very long So we have the start over. I've learned many things in the last 10 years. And some of them have come from Rick, and some of them have come from Wednesday Night Church, and some of them have come from you, my peers, my friends. But here are two. It's not religion. It's a relationship. So again, I'm 49. I grew up in the church. I grew up as a Christian. What's the definition of a Christian? I had no clue. I had no idea. I knew that God saved me at eight. I knew that I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I had to kind of abide by these Rules that were or were not written down on paper. I kind of had a moral compass. But for the life of me, it was always religion. Oh, you're religious. Or give me that old time religion or something. Religion, religion. So I'm here. I'm in this church and I'm, I'm listening. Believe it or not, I'm listening. And... I hear that. It's not religion. It's a relationship. That was the biggest brick that ever dropped out of the sky for me. Because it said, you have no relationship. You are hanging on, clinging on to religion. And you're saying, oh, Christianity, Christianity, I'm acting like a Christian, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. But what are you doing? Nothing. I'm putting on the face. I got the cheer, the joy, the, you know. I'm at church every Sunday. And I say, yeah, I'm religious because I'm saved. And that's how people explain it. But it's not religion that saved me. It's that father-son, one-on-one relationship. The fact that he knew me before I was born. He chose me. He gave me the faith to believe in him. And he gave me the gift of salvation that I could never pay for. That's intimate. That's a relationship I can build on. Okay? The second thing... Is, what's the issue? So, uh, I'm, I'm learning about this relationship. I'm learning about how things kind of, um, build. You know, you study, you listen, you apply. Now granted, I'm still, I'm still wavering. I'm, I'm still, still trying to learn. You know, I'm, I'm biting by the law. But I'm still learning. I'm still messing up. You know, I still have hiccups. I still, I still have that baggage, but I'm trying. And I remember somebody came coming to Gwen, and they were talking about me to Gwen. And they, they said, I've never seen somebody try so hard. You always know that he's trying. You always know that. So... Even though it was maybe half-cocked in trying, I was still trying. I was still seeking. And um, Mike Baker says, you probably are the one person that I know that is super aware of your sin. Because I live with my sin. I, I live with it on paper. I live with it 
in in the in the hardships of my family and you know the the nastiness that that caused so i'm very aware of where i've been and what i've done um which gets very depressing and i do suffer with depression and i have not really decided to kill myself but uh i have definitely looked forward to death I have. Um, so, heart issue. Never was there such a far-reaching, soul-penetrating statement than this. This. This was a valuable key to unlocking the trash that was in my life. Every aspect of my life gets this question. How am I treating my kids and my wife? What am I watching? How is my example of Christ? It can be a very long list, so I will move on. The heart is a very big player in life. It plays with emotions. It plays with attitude and a lot more. But the heart can be manipulated. In Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. This kind of goes along with the idea of you will act like the friends you hang out with. Okay? I hung out with non-Christians and Christians, and I did the things that they did. I smoked. I drank. I looked at bad things. I, you know, whatever. You know, you will be the company that you are with. So, um, we guard... As Christians, I think that we um, we do a lot of things on the outside. So we guard our homes, we guard our children, and we guard our ideals. But all the other times, you know, in my case, we don't guard our heart. We let all kinds of stuff get in there. I mean, this is like an open book sometimes. It's just like, hey, parties in my heart. Come on. You know? So I spend a lot of time just, there it is. You know, whatever. Whatever, whatever. So I did not guard my heart. I was letting everything in that served me and me alone. As long as I kept my heart Subject to the outside, I would not truly be guarding anything. But truly guarding my heart, by truly guarding my heart, I interrupted the source of my grief and pain. The constant reminder of my pain is diminished. I can see the evidence of Christ in my life. The heart issue was the veil that blinded me from the truth that God was desperately trying to show me. So I'm, I'm spending all my time and I'm spending all my efforts in just letting whatever in that I felt comfortable with. I wasn't, you know, going completely off the rails. But, you know, what I'm watching, what I'm listening to, how, who I'm talking to, who are my friends, what do we talk to at work, you know, how do I act at work. Those are hard issues. Everything's a hard issue, I promise you. Everything. Everything's a hard issue. It's just the application of it that you have to do. Everything. You sitting in these pews is a heart issue. Why'd you come? Heart issue. Do you like to worship? Heart issue. Did, do you feel, uh, that you have to come? Heart issue. Do you feel that, um, that you're being made? Heart issue. Everything is a heart issue because everything is applicable. I'll get that out. To the heart. It drives us. It is like the motor running us down the road, physically and and in this case. So, everything, everything is that hard hard issue. Um, So, some things have been easier to deal with than others. But it will always be a fight to the end. I 
am different than before. I feel different than before. I have respect from others that I did not have before. And I have true relationships that are grounded in our common faith. Way different than before. So let's stop and I want to thank some people. From the get-go, John Hartzler, Kevin Berge, did not judge me. Maybe they did in their hearts, I don't know. But they were right there. Herb Eagleson came over to me the day that I stood up here and confessed it all. He didn't say, you are a piece of trash. And I can't stand being in this congregation with you. He says, you are brave. And I'm with you. Ken Steckley came to me. And he said, I want you to know that we love you. Now, there was people that told Gwen to leave me. There was people that told her to, to just boop from the church. Now, I know who they are. Do I hate them? No, I do not. No, I do not. And if you are here and you have cast judgment on me, I don't hate you either. But I would encourage you to get to know me because I am way different now than I was back then. And I would like you to know me now and not dwell on me then. That's what I'm asking you to do. Um, so some of the other verses that I have loved growing up is... Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And that, I just, I think it was actually a meme on Facebook that I saw. But it really went in deep on this verse. And it says, your heart is not pure. Your heart is not perfect. It is fragile. And when you lean on your heart and your own understanding, you are getting the copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the truth. And so for you to try to work that out when you're trying to figure that out is a bad idea. So what do we do? We lean. We lean on God. We lean on his principles, his Bible, his words, because they're Unfallible. They are without mistake. I would much rather play off the, uh, uh, use a playbook that is correct in every way than, let's see if we can give this a shot. I think, I think I would rather do it that way. Philippians, well, let's go back. Some of the other ones that um, throughout many, many years I have um, attached myself to is uh, Proverbs. It's uh, chapter 3, and it is verse 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. So 7 and 8 is, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So, I consider my life and my past a fire. And it consumes. Okay? So it's consuming. Wow. I have been talking a long time. Um, it consumes. And so what have I been doing with that fire? I don't really like it because it burns me. But what have I done? I just kept chucking wood in there because I just don't know any better. And it just keeps burning me. And so I finally got to the point where I said, I'm done chucking wood into this fire. And that is what this verse means to me. Because it has brought healing to my body and refreshment to my bones. Because... This doesn't work near as hard when I don't have all that junk hitting me from every side. My son, 
Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves. He reproves even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Promise. Whenever I felt like God and I were not in the same place, promise. I am son. I am doing this because I love you. Because you are mine. No one can snatch you from me. That's the promise that I, I could get behind. I love that. I love the fact that he's faithful and I'm not. I, I, I'm, I have messed up so many times in so many ways. And he has been faithful to say, come on. Come on. He's let me. He's let me go and said, just, well, I'm sure, you know, in my own way, I say that he would be like, oh, Chris is going there. Okay. Let's go get him. Let's bring him back, you know. And so knowing that God loves me and has not given up on me, refreshment. Because Satan definitely, I can tell you, Satan does not want me to remember that. Satan does not want that promise to be held. And then finally is Philippians 1.6. I've known this verse for, for a long time, but it is very, very dear to me because that's another promise that I just latch on to. Uh, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it out in, to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So perfection isn't happening. I'm not perfect. Don't put me on that. Don't, don't even consider it. I will not be perfect. But... I will be perfect one day. And God has promised me that. So in closing, and I'm sorry I didn't realize I was going to go so long. I know some of what I've shared has been uncomfortable. I know that I've made some or most of you uncomfortable on one or more occasions and I want to specifically say women because I've said inappropriate things in my life I I can just imagine here comes Chris oh crud I gotta get out of here I know it's happened because I've witnessed it I don't blame you so I'm just I want to at least apologize if I've made you uncomfortable and not even in a in, in a serious way just I'm just weird I'm sorry And I want to apologize for putting that burden on you because you might think that when I went through my mess that I wasn't considering anybody else. But everybody, I considered everybody. I apologized to Willard's family because they, they, they're they part of my family. I apologize to, to Calvin's family. Because they're a part of my family. I apologize, apologize to Rick and Mike Bates. Because they're attached to me. That ripple does not go out to here. It goes out there. And anybody and everybody can hear that, oh, did you hear about Chris? Did you hear what happened? And it's just ripple after ripple. And I wanted you to know, I wanted to, these people to know that because of me, they have to have that stupid conversation. They have to deal with that now. They didn't ask for it. They didn't say, hey, let's be... In a conversation that makes me un- uncomfortable, let's let's talk about somebody in my family that's you know gone off the deep end. Hmm, great conversation, I'm sure. So I want to definitely apologize for that. So I am always I'm always willing to talk and explain more detail. I'm I'm an open book. Uh, regarding my testimony today, if you want to know exactly what happened, I'll tell you. I'm not going to tell you right now. 
but I tell you. Um, and um, and I, I would like to get to know a lot of you. And I know that that wall, there's that wall. I know that. I have to be comfortable with that. I have to be okay with the wall because I, I've learned through group therapy and just different things that, you know, you have to just let people be themselves and work out, work it out in their own way. You can't force. So, um, I really appreciate this opportunity. I am way more comfortable now than when I was sitting there because I thought I was going to pee my pants. And, um, so you have listened to me. And um, and I appreciate that. So that is all I have to say. Thank you very much.